Would you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's pause for prayer, though. We need the Lord's help, uh, as always, in understanding His Word. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you have given us this holy, living Word. And we praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in it. It is far more than just a book of wisdom whereby we might order our lives and learn good principles for life. And while it is certainly full of wisdom from on high and truth to live by, it is chiefly your self-revelation. So give us eyes and ears on this day that see you and hear you as you are. And we pray that you would expel from our hearts every false notion of the great God who is. That you would bring us to that place of full submission and surrender to your will for us. That we might experience all the good, the blessings, the benefits, the joy of life in Christ. We pray, dear Spirit of God, that you would instruct us in this truth, that you would convict us of sin, that you would persuade us again that Jesus Christ is the only one who has the power to save us from all sin, that he alone is the way of life. So come, Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit. Come and do all your holy work, all your holy will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Point Man, Steve Farrar tells a great story about a little boy who approached his father after dinner one evening and asked, Daddy, where did I come from? And the father nearly choked with surprise, but managed to gather himself. And because they were alone in the den, he thought this would be as good a time as any to tell his son about the facts of life. So he commenced to tell his young son about the wonderful biology of procreation, of conception, of birth, and more. And after about five minutes, he looked at his son's blank stare and said, Son, is this making any sense? And the boy replied, I guess so, Dad. But Tommy came from Cleveland. Where do we come from? You parents who've had that talk sympathize with it you wonder when the moment will come and even when it does you sometimes wonder if you should still go forward with this uh one of Farrar's points in this book and I would highly recommend it even though it's I think he wrote it 25 or 30 years ago now little questions deserve little answers but big questions deserve big answers and I think many Christian parents often feel ill-equipped to have this really important and sacred conversation. And sometimes we just hope that our kids will figure it out on their own or they'll make their way through the world as many of us had to do. And so this particular area of life, our sexuality as created by God and ordained and blessed of God, largely remains unaddressed. I'm actually really happy to be at this particular point in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 for some of those very reasons. Because 
not only is it something that God speaks to directly, and not only are there really wonderful things for parents to be able to share with their children, there are marvelous truths in this passage for all of us to know, to rest in, to rejoice in, to practice in this holy and honorable way as the Lord will describe for us. Let's read through 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll ask you to follow along as I begin reading in verse uh, 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you Know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. Now, I'm going to tell you as well, a little quick side note, that when Matt and I laid out this sermon series, I was given all the way through verse 12, but we can't bite off that chunk today. So you're going to have to study that out on your own because next week um, I will not be here because my, uh, one of my daughters is getting married. So I love you and I love being here with you, but um, she's really special to me. And I thought it would be good for me to go to her wedding next weekend. <laughs> so that's where I'll be. But Matt's going to jump in on verse 13 unless you wanted to go back and pick up nine, Matt. But we, we, we never talked about that. Okay, great. <laughs> There's really good stuff there. Now, just to give you a little high overview, when, and we're going to dive into this in a moment, when the Lord commands us to live our lives in a way that pleases Him, that, that idea of pleasing actually hangs over this particular passage that deals with Christian sexuality. It also governs, I believe, the verses 9 through 12 that teach us, reinforce for us that loving one another is a high priority, and then the way we go about our work and our daily living and all of that, I think it even has bearing on the section uh, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter where Paul talks about the coming of the Lord. Pleasing the Lord is such a, a simple yet fundamental truth from God's word. And Paul brings it up in verse 1. So go back to that with me as we work our way through the passage. He says very simply, you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing. First of all, it's commanded. Please God. That means you live your life in order to bring him delight, in order to give him pleasure. Most people on planet earth today actually live to please self. And so it actually becomes a form of idolatry that we live for our own pleasure, we live for our own delight, we live for our own fulfillment. But God is actually saying, no, no, I created you. I'm the one who gave you life and breath, just like we were singing a few minutes ago in, in that song. He's worthy of every breath we could breathe because breath is a gift from him. So with every choice in life, we need to be asking, does this please God? 
Does my work please God? Does the effort I put into school please God? Does the way I manage my finances please God? Do my eating habits please God? Does my conversation with others please God? Does the use of my time please God? Do my private entertainment and leisure choices please God? Do I live to please God? It's clearly commanded. You know, even our Lord Jesus, who is God, right? But he said, and it's recorded in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was speaking of his heavenly father. Now, it's not only commanded here in this first chapter, but Paul commends it. And this is what gives us hope. Because sometimes you say, oh, there are areas of my life that are still not fully surrendered. And I'm not sure if I please God. Well, remember, these are new believers, some of them only, only uh, walking in faith in Christ for a matter of months at this particular moment. And Paul goes on to say, do you see it here? Just as you are doing. That's a little bit of a way to go. Way to go, Thessalonians. Stay after it. And then he says, do so more and more. So the Thessalonian church was growing in its understanding of God's heart and what pleases him. And so should we. I love how John Stott, who is a a commentator, Bible scholar, uh, a preacher who has been with the Lord now, but while he had life and breath, he wrote a number of commentaries and helps, and I've really been blessed by his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. I'd recommend that you get it um, if you had an opportunity. It's very accessible, uh, very down-to-earth, but he actually refers to this uh, as a flexible principle, this principle of living to please God. A flexible principle that will rescue us from the rigidities of a Christian Phariseeism which tries to reduce morality to a list of do's and don'ts. True, we still need to be instructed how to live in order to please God. Nevertheless, our incentive will be not so much to obey the law as thereby to please the lawgiver. And that is a huge shift in focus. Because in saving you from your sin, God is not calling you into a life of rule-keeping. That's not the primary focus. The life he's called you to is a personal relationship with him. And yes, he is the lawgiver. But remember all the other ways that he's revealed himself to you. As father, as lord, as king, as creator, as shepherd and friend. And when you begin to understand the heart of your God and the fact that even his law flows from his heart not only to glorify himself, but to bring you good. That's why you don't lie and cheat and commit murder and covet and all the other stuff in the Big Ten Commandments. It's an expression of God's love for you. Your best, your good, your wholeness and your your blessedness is wrapped up in this law. So it's not actually about keeping all of God's rules. It's about entering joyfully into the relationship with him. And, And I would say this, if you actually chafe underneath some of God's laws, then then you actually need to drill down a little deeper and say, what is it about him that I'm failing to understand? Because there's something at that level that you are disconnected from. So John Stott says, it's a flexible principle that will rescue us from the rigidities of a Christian Pharisaism, which tries to reduce morality to a list of do's and don'ts. God's not just trying to impose a list on your life or mine. Now, look at the next part of this. In verse 3, he begins to teach us as well as command us to pursue our sanctification. What what does the word sanctification mean? Well, it just has to do with consecration. 
You say, what does consecration mean? Well, when you consecrate something, you set it apart. You make it special. And you know, from God's perspective, when he saved you, when his son died on the cross, died the death that you deserve to die for your sin, and when God gave you the gift of forgiveness for your sins and removed the guilt and removed the shame, he was setting you apart. Now, there are two aspects of that that we're going to see here uh, very, very quickly. First of, all, first of all, you're set apart for God, set apart for relationship with him. The power of, of God's salvation is that he truly does make you special in his sight. And for that to be true, the more specific word is he makes you holy. A holy God wants you to be holy. How remarkable that he really does cleanse you from all of your sinfulness and impurity. How amazing that he actually removes real guilt and real shame that accompany our sin. How amazing that he clothes us in the very righteousness of Jesus, gives it as a gift, and and with it a new standing. And he is the one who actually calls you his saints, his holy ones. Now, you and I get up every morning and look in the mirror and go like, I'm not actually holy. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that needs work. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't change the real legal standing that God gives to people who come to him and say, please forgive me, please cleanse me, please give me the gift of eternal life. He actually declares you to be righteous. I feel like I say this almost every week, but this is, this is worth saying every week. It's worth saying every day of your life. I've actually been declared righteous. I've actually been declared by God to be a real saint. And now, in, in, in light of what he has done, that's called our justification, we now get busy working to match it. I want my day-to-day living. I want my moment-by-moment thinking and speaking and living to match that legal standing that God has given me. He says I'm a saint. I need to live like a saint. A lot of people reverse that, though. And, and friend, if you're here today thinking that, well, if you do enough saintly things, then maybe God will confer upon you sainthood, you got it backwards. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God saves and cleanses and brings us to that place uh, of holiness and in a legal standing, and then we begin to pursue our sanctification. Now, you're not all on your own. This is a whole other sermon, uh, but the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He works in you to bring you to sanctification. God himself is committed to it. I love Philippians 1.6. The God who began that good work in you is the one who will be faithful to complete it. So you're not, you're not pursuing your sanctification on your own, not by a long shot. So there's consecration of self to God, even as he has set us apart. But there's a second aspect of it, and that is we're actually set apart from the world. And that's where you see an important concept of contrast. And specifically, as we dig into this realm of our sexuality, there should be a stark contrast between the way you and I think and operate in this world and a world, and and when I say world, I mean a world system that actually is not in relationship with God, that is not seeking to understand his will for their lives and live according to his law. In contrast to that, though, God calls us, as he was calling the Thessalonians, to live differently. There must be a distinction about the Christian life. 
Now, I think it's really important to know the biblical and cultural context, even of this letter. And so I actually want to just survey very briefly uh, some helpful background and history from that day and age. Greek culture was largely characterized by immorality, ignorance of the true God, and impurity. Let me just read to you what several scholars have put together about that day and age. One author, again, John Stott, I quoted him earlier, but let me just resume uh, some of his thoughts. Paul was writing from Corinth, city of Corinth, back to the saints in Thessalonica. Both cities were famed for their immorality. In Corinth, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, whom the Romans identified with Venus, sent her servants out as prostitutes to roam the streets by night. Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, in whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. And that little uh, carving, um, that's the background of that particular slide, is actually taken from Greek civilization, and those are, as I uh, did a little research and found out, imaging the, the temple prostitutes. Isn't it fascinating, if not alarming, disconcerting, that both religion and immorality were woven together as if somehow we could engage in this immoral behavior as an act of worship? But doesn't it make sense, even in the light of our own day and age? Because people may not be at the local pantheon worshiping carved images, but many people live their life worshiping self, and so the great I becomes God. What I want, what I think, even the sexual identity I want to create, the sexual experiences I want to pursue, it's all about me. It's just a form of worship. It's just a form of idolatry. Michael Martin Another commentator that I've been blessed by in this study of of 1 Thessalonians writes of Greek culture that the casual use of prostitutes, again pictured behind me here on the screen in this carving, and the practice of ritual sexual intercourse in certain cults was common in the Hellenistic cities. F.F. Bruce writes, in the pagan society to which the gospel was first brought, various forms of extramarital sexual union were tolerated, and some were even encouraged. And and I kind of want to let you see this as I read through his explanation of it. A man, who we use pictures symbolically in the middle of the screen, a man might have a mistress who could provide him also with intellectual companionship as well as uh, a sexual relationship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have concubines while casual gratification was readily available from prostitutes. And then, of course, the function of his wife was to manage his household and be the mother of his legitimate children and heirs. I mean, you hear that and you just say, what a mess. Yeah, exactly. You see, that's what happens when any person begins to live life uh, separate from the God who created them separate from a true knowledge of who he is and what his wise and holy and good design for your life is. And American culture is characterized by the same kind of chaos and cultural confusion as it just rushes headlong deeper and deeper deeper into its own expressions of immorality. Now, what's the biblical perspective on this? Well, look at the text again and go to verse 3 because we're going to actually string together a series of terms that Paul uses in this passage that, that actually give us a biblical perspective on what all this means. I said a moment ago that Greek culture was largely characterized by immorality, 
uh, ignorance and impurity. And I want you to see where the text points us in that direction. First of all, look at verse 3. Paul simply describes this kind of living as sexual immorality. He uses the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? You say pornography comes to mind. Yes, that's where the term pornography comes from. Porneia, though, is a broad uh, heading. It's a term that refers to any sexual sin, and that would include things like adultery and fornication, even lewd acts or incest or prostitution. The list goes on. Sexual immorality, porneia. Verse 5, he speaks of the passion of lust, that those who don't know God, that Gentiles refers generically to the unconverted, those who don't have a personal relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Passion of lust, actually this term, these terms are used in other places in the New Testament, rarely, typically refers to what's bad, but it actually, it generically just refers to any strong desire. But in contexts like these, it refers to strong desires of self-indulgence or inordinate cravings. You might even use the term carnal desires. Several, a couple of us have been reading through uh, a really challenging book written by an author named Jay Stringer. The title is Unwanted. How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. And I'm sure that title is really intriguing to some of you. Um, if you'd like to know more, I'd love to tell you about what I'm uh, thinking and, and learning and being challenged with. But, but Stringer writes a very interesting um, paragraph uh, in one of the early chapters. And he, he's speaking specifically to the passion of lust. Listen to this. Lust exposes your demand to be filled. And if you listen to your lust, it will reveal a holy desire for belonging. This is challenging. But hold with me for just a moment. Because scripture, I think, actually does back this up. Then he gives the example of anger. Anger exposes your demand for control. But if you study your anger, you will find that it produces a remarkable radar for injustice. Not all anger is sinful, right? There is righteous anger. There's righteous indignation. And, and, and Stringer raises an interesting point that perhaps it is uh, a, a signal that you actually see or have experienced some injustice. He goes on, the journey out of unwanted sexual behavior begins by recognizing that your struggles may be the most honest dimension of your life. And among other things, he says, your sexual struggles may in fact reveal Listen to this carefully. The trafficked longings of your heart. The trafficked longings of your heart. As I've been meditating on this, my mind goes back to Genesis 3 where the devil shows up. And, and what does he do with good, whole, even holy desires created into Adam and Eve by God the Creator? Well, he presents an option for fulfilling those desires. And if you read Genesis 3, and we were there back in the fall, but think back with me again, what are the three things that Eve was experiencing that moment when she saw that the fruit was, first of all, good for food? There's nothing inherently sinful about hunger for food. The second thing the Bible says is when she saw that it was desirable to make her wise. There's nothing wrong with a desire to grow in our knowledge and wisdom and understanding of the universe. Good for food. Oh, I skipped the second one. Pleasant to the eyes. That's the aesthetic appeal. Well, God himself loves beauty. The world around us is full of it. Look around this room 
It's an extraordinary demonstration of aesthetic beauty. So good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She hasn't sinned yet in that realm, but then she takes the bait that Satan offers her. That's an example of how he traffics God-given desires. And that's exactly what he is doing with sexuality in our world today. He's actually taking God-created, God-ordained desires for sexual fulfillment, for sexual relationship, and twisting, distorting, perverting, abusing, all kinds of words that we could use to describe that. A passion of lust. Third thing that Paul says is also in verse 5, and, and he, he attributes this kind of living to the fact that these are people who do not know God. There's the ignorance. It's a spiritual ignorance of God, first as creator, then as king, as savior, as father, as friend, as shepherd. I mean, the list is long of all that he is for us. Because so many people do not know the high and holy purposes for which they are created. They find the first available opportunity or create an alternative reality in this realm of our sexuality that often gives a sense of belonging but it's always short-lived because there's never more pleasure in sin than for a brief season, the Bible says. Oh, there's, there's instantaneous pleasure. May even last a few minutes, hours, maybe a few days, but it is short-lived. That's one of the, that's one of the grim realities of sexual immorality or sexual sin that, that Satan never advertises. So that's why a teenage girl gives her virginity to the first boy who comes along with smooth talk and attention. She thinks that the deep desire she has in her soul, down in the depths of her heart, to belong, to be loved, to be valued, to be honored by someone will be met by this boy. That's not at all what he's thinking. That's what a man is looking for in some form when he sits in front of a computer for hours on end, binging on pornographic images. I just want something that makes me feel fulfilled, satisfied, makes me feel like a true man. And that's what a middle-aged woman is wrestling with when she goes from one partner to another, to another, to another. We know in our souls we're created for more. But to be ignorant of God is actually to be ignorant of your true identity. God is creator. You and I are not created randomly, but created in his image and created to bear his image. Nobody gets up in the morning and looks in the mirror typically and thinks, that's a little representation of God himself. And few of us even look at the people around us and say, wow, look at that person. Look at that individual. That helps me to understand God better. And even with this area of, uh, or this theme of sexuality, what, what we do is we confuse a good gift, which sexuality is, and make it an ultimate thing and stop worshiping the giver of the good gift, and we begin to worship the gift. And part of the chaos of our world today is that because there's no true identity found in God, we go searching for identity in other things, even down to the fact that people say, how do you identify? And you know how a true Christian should answer that question first and foremost, and maybe even exclusively right now? I identify as an image bearer of God who's been bought through the blood of Jesus Christ and brought into relationship with him. No, that's not what I mean. What are your pronouns? I can tell you what they are, but that's not my identity. But we live in a world that wants to identify in all kinds of ways. How do you identify? I identify in God, the God of the Bible. 
He's my life. There's a, there's a fourth, and I'll say category here, and it is the category of dishonoring one another. Uh, go down to uh, the next couple of verses where you see the warning issued where Paul actually says, uh, you are not to transgress your brother or wrong your brother. I want to group these two words together because there is something tragic that happens in a godless sexuality, and that is there is a deep violation, not only of God's law, but of others. The term transgress means to step over limits or boundaries, as you can see. And the word to wrong means to take advantage of or even defraud someone. And this stands in direct contrast to two of the themes that we're going to develop in just a moment of holiness and honor. And, and what so many have experienced, though very few people want to verbalize it until extraordinary damage has done, is that both as the active partner or even a passive partner, there's all kinds of transgression and de- defrauding that goes on. God has set limits and established boundaries for our good. And then the final category is just the word impurity. What is unclean? What is dirty? Especially of sexual sins. And so you can see immorality and impurity serve like bookends for God's perspective on what is happening throughout the world. And right in the middle of it is this, they do not know God, this ignorance. And if I can pause for a moment, even in the context of here we are at the beginning of Pride Month. And some of you have seen the news reports of, yeah, and we were actually downtown uh, uh, Thursday night, and they were beginning to set up the tents, you know, to celebrate this big pride event and, and weekend. And I think we need to guard our hearts against just being, you know, kind of angry and irritated and put out. I think we need to make sure we cultivate the heart that God has with reference to this kind of expression and recognize, first of all, there's an ignorance of God of who he really is because these neighbors of ours are created in the image of God and have as, have as much divine value and worth as you and I do. They just don't know him intimately. They're also captive to those passions, those strong desires of lust. But at the end of the day, if you could dig underneath that, they're looking for the same kinds of acceptance and affirmation and belonging and honor that you and I are looking for, but thankfully have come to know are found in God. And so even these commands and instructions for us need to be received with a spirit of humility and grace. Now let's look at the grace of Christian sexuality. And I want you to notice something. I, I intentionally chose that background image, even though a couple of more slides from now, there's going to be a picture of a husband and wife. Uh, it, it looks like even you know, a young husband, a newly married husband and wife, because you know, it looks like it belongs in a in a wedding album of sorts. But what I, what I want to inf- reinforce right now is that marriage in and of itself is not designed by God to save anybody from sexual sin. It can be a great gift in helping to pursue sanctification and fight temptation, but don't put your faith and trust in, in a, like a, a divinely sanctioned uh, form of sexuality. Only Jesus saves and so there, there are two commands here that are given to us. The first is the negative side of it, that we abstain from all forms of immorality. And number two, we control our bodies. Now look at verse 4 because he describes two uh, ideas here for us that begin to elevate 
the believer's view of sexuality. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Negatively, we abstain from sexual immorality, not only because God commanded it, but because sin of all kinds hurts us. That's one of the simple lessons that we used to try to reinforce with our children, even when they were young, even prior to getting spankings. I mean, we would say to them, we'd, we'd walk them through kind of a, a little bit of a, of a gospel conversation. What did you do? You know, I, you know, hit my sister. And what does God call that? God calls that sin. That's right, because it's not an expression of love for your sister. And what does God say about sin? Sin has to be punished. That's right. And, and not only that sin has to be punished, but sin always hurts us, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, you know, daddy, or God commands daddy to, to discipline you when you sin. Yeah, I know. How many, how many whacks are you going to give me? And I've told you a little bit about this before. We always limited it to three. Um, unless they fought us, and then they could actually multiply <laughs> wax. Um, and the point was never to hurt them or vent my anger. The point, even in the wax, which we administered with a, a paint stirrer. You can get those at Home Depot. <laughs> but by the application of the rod in a controlled way, after we had this conversation about what had taken place, because you want them to connect the right dots, we, we would apply that on, on the back of the thigh, because that, that'll sting. But we're not, we're not abusing our kids, and the last thing we want to do is hurt them, bruise them. That's abuse, and God never, never sanctions that, let alone calls for it. But we're trying to reinforce with our kids, you need to abstain from all sin because sin will destroy you. Sin will cost you more than you ever thought it would. Well, God is saying, I want you to abstain from all sexual immorality, not only because I'm a holy God and that's unholy living, but it will destroy you. And some of you could stand up right now and tell stories about how your own experiences with sexual immorality have brought great destruction and harm to your soul, to your family, to a marriage, to children, to other relationships. We live in a culture that's devastated by sexual sin. Now, the good news is the cross of Jesus Christ is a powerful place of cleansing, of healing, of restoration. And that's also the place where there is real power to bring you and me Sinners by nature who've thought and said and done all kinds of unholy things to, to really generate in us the kind of holiness that God is commanding. Let's, let's talk briefly about the holiness of Christian sexuality. We first of all express that. Paul uses the term control, learn to control your own body in holiness. That is in moral purity. And, and remember that this moral purity is the result of our dedication to God. He began that work. He's going to complete that work. That's why the cross must remain central. The cross of Jesus Christ is the power of holy sexuality. Jump over to 1 Corinthians 6 for just a moment. If you're in 1 Thessalonians and you turn back a few pages, verse 13, where the Lord just says uh, very simply, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, again, if you're ignorant of God and you don't really understand him as your creator, how wisely and lovingly and even in holiness he's created you for greater purposes than you can fathom, you would think that your body is your own. My body, my choice. Hmm, actually, that's inaccurate. 
Your body is the creator's. And your creator did not design your body for sexual immorality. He actually designed you for him. And he's Lord of your body. Skip to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You want to belong? God makes a way for you not only to belong to him because he created you, but through Christ to belong in very personal relationship with him. Members of Christ means that Christ looks at you the way you look at your arms and legs, your hands, your feet, your ears, your brain, the internal stuff you can't even see. You're like, this is my body. It's, it's precious. Well, that's how Jesus looks at you. You are his body. Then Paul actually asks a question that, that seems so inappropriate and unthinkable. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And he answers the question, never. I mean, who, who would even entice the holy, sinless Son of God to engage in such immoral behavior? Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he goes on in verse 18 to just say straight up, flee from sexual immorality. Every, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, and here's another marvelous truth, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, created by God through redemption, brought into a most intimate relationship with God the Son. And now he's saying your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But friends, that's for your good. It is not for your good to just sleep around with whomever, whenever, whatever you want. That is destructive to your soul and your spirit. And God actually says, you can sin against yourself. I don't know of any other uh, example in Scripture that, that God would describe an act as a sin against self, but this is one. That's all tied into the holiness of our Christian sexuality. It is a sacred gift of God. Now, let's look at the second thought here very quickly. The honor of Christian sexuality. And again, this, this second word is tied back to the command to control your own body, first in holiness, now he says, in honor. That has to do with the highest respect. Honor has to do with high respect. And again, this stands in stark contrast to transgressing your brother or wronging or defrauding another. Now the question is, who are we honoring? Well, first of all, we're honoring God as our creator and father. Four times in this letter, Paul refers to God as our father. There's a very personal relationship that we have with him. But there's also honor with respect to others. First of all, because they themselves are created by God in his image and created and cared for by God. Author Michael Martin writes, honorable behavior does not show disrespect for the sanctity of the self or demean the value of others, not in any way, shape, or form. The use of the body, a body created by God, for immoral purposes both degrades the person and dishonors the creator. And in this context, we could also add, it also degrades and dishonors the partner or partners. It's just not what God designed. But for now, as we wrap up this little portion, I want you to consider that the grim contrast to what God is putting before us is the self-worship that we see manifesting itself in all kinds of things. 
And because we worship self, including our bodies, and fail to worship God as the creator, all kinds of abusive and devaluing behavior with regard to the human body plague our culture. This is at the root of pornography, at the root of prostitution and sex trafficking. It dishonors God and it dishonors our fellow man. Sex before marriage, even with the person you plan to marry, dishonors God and the other person. It's not his will. It's not his way. Sex outside of marriage dishonors God and others. Selfish motives or practices, even within the context of marriage, dishonors God and others. I love what Stott wrote in his commentary. Marriage is not a form of legalized lust. We should meditate on that. So a Christian begins from the foundation that God is creator and maker. God's plan and design, God's will is best. I am created and commanded to please him, and I pursue his will even along the lines of my, my sexuality and practice specifically to please and honor him and also to pursue holiness and honor with and for other people. So yes, very quickly, it does mean that the only Sexual union God blesses is between a husband and wife in the context of marriage. Period. Period. Any other practice is a distortion, a perversion, is sin. Now, I know in a room like this, one of the questions, because I love this church, many of you are singles for various reasons. Like, what about me? Well, God's word is clear. And aren't you glad that, first of all, your personal identity is not founded upon your sexuality. Your personal identity is rooted, firmly, fixed, forever in Jesus Christ. Even Jesus, who lived all of his 33 years single, never entering into a sexual relation, despite what the Da Vinci Code would, would tell you, right? It's, that, that's a whole other discussion, but that's a form of just Gnostic thinking. We all love a good conspiracy theory, don't we? That's why some of you go to the websites you do and you share these videos one another with one another. Oh, here's the real story. Most Americans don't know this. Whatever. What does Jesus demonstrate to us? That to abstain for all your life, even in one sense through the prime years of youth, it can be done to the glory of God. Nobody has to have a sexual relationship to know fulfillment, to know joy, to know the pleasure of God. So for your encouragement, God loves you, and his plan, and, and his plan for you is blessed. Now there is a serious warning. I'm only going to have time to mention this, but God is an avenger of sexual sins, and this, this would merit a deep, deep dive. There's a serious warning, first of all, that begins in verse 6. The command is that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Hebrews reinforces this same thought saying that marriage should be held in honor among all and the marriage bed, which that is symbolic of the sexual union, be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He doesn't tell us when it will happen. He just says it's coming. And if some of you think that you're getting away with stuff, you're not. And to encourage some of you who have been victims of horrible things in this realm, your perpetrator is not getting away with it. Will not. That ought to cause some of us to tremble. 
when we think of what we have done or engaged in. That ought to drive us back to the cross to say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And you know, everyone who comes to the foot of the cross finds mercy. There's a serious warning, but finally there is a sacred plan. Verse 7, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Oh, what a blessing. God is not seeking to inhibit or destroy human sexuality. He is actually seeking to bless it and give it the fullest expression. Nobody wants you to be more blessed, more sanctified, more holy, more honored than God himself. And the cultural chaos and confusion of this moment demonstrate that when we refuse God's command to live for his pleasure and begin to live for our own pleasure, we forfeit truth and beauty, blessing and wholeness. The cultural narrative right now is is that it's your choice, it's your body, it's your life, it's your ambition, it's your desire. Choose what you want. Evolve however you desire. But the truth is that God created us not only as male and female, but as sexual beings. And God created the sexual union to be a sacred, a, a sacred expression of his divine holiness and love. The world has so cheapened sex that it is little more than a momentary hit of fleeting pleasure. And when sex becomes the end game, the sacred and holy nature of spiritual union between a husband and wife is forfeited and the holy bond of heart and soul will never be forged because there is no understanding of or intent to honor the God who gifted us with sex or to honor the other person who's created in the very image of this holy God. So what now? Well, a few thoughts in closing here. As I've studied this, I've felt a deepening call even to my own repentance. You say, well, I mean, it's obvious if there's sexual sin that we should repent of. No, we need to go deeper and repent of idolizing the gift of sex and not worshiping God first. We need to repent of abusing the gift of sex and not pleasing God in obedience. Maybe some need to repent even of demanding sex of a partner rather than honoring your spouse. Or repent of neglecting sex and not honoring God and his wisdom in designing it and ordaining it and blessing it. Perhaps repent of perverting sex and not protecting its holiness and honor for practicing sex outside of God's created and ordained boundaries. There are many facets of this. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would would lead us very specifically. And then there's always a positive component. Repentance is the negative, like you turn away from, you put stuff away. And then in faith you turn. And this is a moment brothers and sisters, for us to consecrate ourselves anew and afresh to God, first of all, but even to his wise design to say, God, give me grace to please you and to pursue holiness and honor in my sexuality. And, and you know, I think, again, of Thessalonians, how Paul had said earlier, you turn from idols to serve the living God. Thessalonians had stories they didn't want to go back and rehearse, just like many of us have stories we don't want to go back and rehearse, and you don't need to. You can have the great joy of pressing forward, though, of saying, I'm a different person to the glory of God and the way I used to think and live and speak and act and all that. It's done. God commends you and says, press on. Consecrating yourself 
because you are a saint. What a mercy. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads with me? I know this is a a tender, if not difficult, topic because it brings up painful memories. But friend, let me say, first of all, if you feel the Spirit's conviction regarding past sins and failures, oh, run to the foot of the cross. Kneel at the foot of the cross and by faith gaze upon the Savior who bled and died because you sinned in all those ways. Who for the joy that was set before him endured that cross, despised the shame, He's been seated at the right hand of God. He did it to save you and rescue you, that you would never have to carry the load of guilt and shame that you've carried for so long. Will you just kneel by faith at the foot of the cross right now and say, God, have mercy upon my soul. Forgive me for my sin. Cleanse me. Take the guilt. Take the shame. Give me a new life. I want to be holy. I want to live for your pleasure. Would you pray that right now? And as you are praying, would you thank him that he has also promised that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you for your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There really is relief. There really is forgiveness. There really is wholeness. And friend, would you join me in consecrating yourself afresh to the holiness and honor of a Christian, of this Christian sexuality? Would you consecrate yourself to pleasing God in all things, but certainly this one thing? Would you say, God, thank you for making me a saint. I consecrate myself to living like one. I yield to your plan and your purposes. I yield the deep longings of my heart to be valued, to be honored, to belong. I yield all of that to you and ask you to be the one. Consecrate yourself. As you're praying, know this, that you're among friends. And there may be a specific area that you're struggling with this morning that you say, I, I feel like I need to talk with you or, or one of the other pastors. Could I do that? The answer is yes. Matt and Daniel and I are here. Pastor Lloyd Larkin is here. It'd be our joy to open the word of God and, and to show you answers to your questions. We want you to know the relief that comes through Christ. So if you need a little explanation or if you need someone to pray with you know that we're here to serve you in that way father would you take your word and seal it to our hearts expel from our minds every false notion whether it be something that i spoke in the last hour or whether it be something that we formulated out of our own mind and as you rid our hearts of everything that is false oh lord god establish our Savior himself, establish your word, establish the presence of the Spirit that truly we may please you in all things. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.